on now to the reading and proclaiming of God's word. And uh, we're, we're going through the second half of uh, the book of Ephesians. And I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago that we were running into some choppy waters uh, with the passages. And, and we are here today uh, with the fullest, lengthiest teaching on marriage in the whole New Testament. Marriage, roles within marriage, uh, these are not uh, topics without controversy in our culture. So let's hear what Scripture has to say about them. A reading from Ephesians chapter 5. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we're grateful uh, for your word. We're grateful that you speak into uh, every aspect of our lives, and what Jesus has done for us changes and transforms uh, every aspect of our lives. Thank you. In particular, this means marriage as well. We pray that you would help us to hear this word and that you would apply it to our hearts by your Holy Spirit, uh, that we might learn in every way to submit to one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you might have heard from my wife, Erin, uh, on, because on more than one occasions, she has said that she didn't fall in love with me until after we got married. I tend to disagree with her timetable, but our engagement was definitely rocky. I was going to seminary in St. Louis, and she was out here teaching in Sunnyvale. And so to get engaged, I flew out and surprised her, got her a ring, wrote her a poem, asked her to marry me. It was great that day until the next day when we started planning the wedding. Since I wasn't living locally, it meant that we had to start registering for gifts that week right away. And, you know, that's supposed to be a fun thing, right? You, you go to a store, Crate and Barrel, and you get one of those skew guns, and you just start shooting everything, pew, 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 right? It's supposed to be fun and exciting. But with every moment that went by, every new item we shot, her countenance grew sadder. There are many tears that first week, and there are many tears the whole engagement. And we almost called off the marriage with only two weeks to go. But we made it to the wedding day. And that morning, I, fo- I woke up feeling really weird. Not because I partied too much the night before. There was just this pit in my stomach and a weight on my chest. And w- I went out to brunch with my wedding party and family, um, but I felt awful. 
So finally, I asked my brother to take me back to the hotel. I still had hours before I needed to, to get dressed into my suit. But the moment I was in the room alone by myself, I just burst out into tears. And I wept and I prayed for a long time. And not to, be, not to sound offensive, but this felt like how Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane, which sounds ridiculous and overly dramatic, but it resonates with me because I felt like I was dying. Both Aaron and I were experiencing this dread, that marriage meant death. And it does. Marriage is a beautiful, wonderful mystery, but it takes death to make it so. And that's one of the primary things we see here in this passage. And of course, this passage can be incredibly challenging for us in our culture now. It has some words and concepts that can act as triggers, like submission and headship. This passage and a few others like it have been used to legitimize all kinds of sexism, infantilizing of women, domestic abuse. The misinterpretation and misapplication of this passage throughout history and the damage they have caused makes it difficult to handle wisely and positively. Some people dismiss Christianity because of passages like this. Some Christians are disturbed and confused by passages like this, and their faith is weakened. You might not be married. You might never get married. But because of our history and cultural moment, it's vital that we hear correctly what the Bible says about marriage and roles in marriage. This is God's word. It is trustworthy and true and meant for our good and our flourishing. We must not avoid passages like this. But we do have to spend some extra time explaining and understanding them. So this will not be a a conventional sermon. In fact, um, this and next week's sermons won't be conventional. There's enough to unpack here that we need more than one week to talk about it. I don't want to just give some awesome tweets and sound bites that sound really cool and then aren't explained. So today we are going to focus exclusively on husbands and headship. Next week we will cover other aspects of the passage. Now we're starting with husbands for a number of reasons, which I will explain, but let me first make another disclaimer. I don't want to mansplain. Maybe you've heard of what mansplaining is. Here's an example. Uh, a, a former female senior executive at Juniper Networks recounted a story from one of her colleagues. A group of men and women were in a room hearing a presentation, and the presenter asked the group whether anyone had expertise in breastfeeding. As I said, there are women in the crowd, some of them mothers who had breastfed. None of them raised their hands as having any expertise. Instead, a dude raised his hand, right, looking around. <laughs> Sir, what are your expertise in breastfeeding? Well, I watched my wife breastfeed for three months, right? That's mansplaining. I'm an expert. I've seen this done before. I'm not a woman. I'm not a wife in that way. I don't want to mansplain that. But I am a dude, and I am a husband, and I have some things to say that are not illegitimate about it. So this week, we're going to speak about husbands and headship. Because if you notice this, if you look at this passage, Paul spends more words towards husbands than towards wives. This passage has a greater weight towards husbands. And I don't think you can understand what Paul says about wives and submission until we understand what Paul means by headship. So that's why we're looking at this first. 
Hopefully, uh, you, you know, at some point during the sermon, you're going to say, well, Bob, what about this? What about that? You're going to have some questions. Hopefully that's answered in this sermon or in next week's sermon. So I can only ask you uh, to be patient. But today we're going to see what headship is and is not. We'll start with what it is not. Headship is not domination. Instead, it means love, unity, and responsibility. So first, it's not domination. Maybe the most important thing we need to see and remember about headship in human marriage is it is not about dominating and ruling. But that's not how it can come across at first. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And when we read this, our minds easily move toward categories like power, hierarchy, privilege, superiority. This reads like men or husbands are to wield power and authority over their wives. Husbands sit in a place of privilege and superiority, whereas wives sit below in a place of servitude and inferiority. And that's not what is being expressed here. And it's not what's expressed throughout the whole Bible. The Bible acknowledges the way things are at the time of its writing. It speaks into a patriarchal world, a world where women were not considered fully human, where they could be bought and sold by fathers and husbands, where their only asset was their virginity, where violence against them was condoned and often expected. Right? I could go on. The Bible speaks into that world and condemns it. The Bible teaches that women are equal to men in value and essence, and that it's wrong to treat women like property or use violence against them, and it lays out protections for women in those societies. Dominating power was used by men over women. It's not the way things were supposed to be. It's not how God made the world. In fact, it's one of the first named results of our sin. In Genesis 3.16, God declares that marriage under sin, outside the garden, will entail a power struggle. To Eve, he says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And that phrase, desire for, means a desire to control or dominate. Sin and alienation create a power struggle between man and woman, husband and wife. So without guidance from scripture or revelation from the spirit, it's easy to think that marriage is simply a question of power. Who rules? Who follows? How is the power split up? But that's not how it was originally set up or intended. That's what sin has done to the institution. Aristotle, the famous ancient philosopher, he answered that question. How do you deal with power in marriage? He answered that question for the Greco-Roman culture and the world of the New Testament. This is what he wrote. Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female. The male is by nature superior and the female inferior. And the one rules and the other is ruled. This principle of necessity extends to all mankind. That's Aristotle, right? The founder of basically Western civilization. Aristotle and nearly everyone after him in the ancient world believed that the husband ruled because men were by nature superior to women. But Paul writes something dramatically different about these relationships. He's been writing about what life looks like for the church, 
the local body of Christ. He's just finished giving general instructions that everyone is to be filled with the Spirit, singing and speaking hymns to each other, giving thanks to God. And then here in verse 21, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The call for mutual submission runs throughout the New Testament from both Jesus and the apostles. And in a culture where relationships are based on strict hierarchy and domination, the idea of mutual service and submission was incredibly revolutionary. See, Jesus came to reverse the curse. He came to reverse the curse. The curse of sin and death, the curse of violent patriarchy. And I'm not making this up. God promises a savior in Genesis 3 before he explains the consequences of sin to Adam and Eve. Before he talks about the power struggle in marriage, he says that a seed of Eve's will come to crush the serpent's head. One of the ways that he's going to reverse the curse is by overthrowing this domineering patriarchy. Jesus comes to reverse and overthrow that. And so Paul has to address, what do these uh, relationships in the household look like now? How does a master submit to his slave? How does a parent submit to their child? How does a husband submit to his wife? These ideas and categories didn't exist. So Paul is using Aristotle's household structure. He will address the same relationships, husband, wife, parent, child, master, slave. But he's reshaping and reappropriating the relationships under a new reality of union with Christ and the call for mutual submission. What Paul's original listeners had grown up with and expected would be for him to tell husbands to rule over their wives. Husbands, rule over your wife. That's glaringly absent from this passage. The only command Paul gives to husbands, the only command, is to love their wives. That's it. Husbands, love your wife. That's all That's the whole command. And then he explains that. And he defines what that looks like. So that's the first thing. What is headship? Headship is love. And what does that look like? Read verse 25 with me. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's no denying that the position of head or headship is a position of power. And to us, power feels like privilege and glory. But what if power really was about service? giving self away even to the point of death. This is exactly how Jesus redefines power and authority in Mark chapter 10. I put it in your bulletin at the front. Jesus called them to him, the apostles, and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what does husband headship look like here in this passage? The husband giving up himself, dying out of love for his wife, in a similar fashion to how Jesus gave up himself and died for his bride, the church. Power is reordered in the gospel. Now, what's the goal of husband giving himself up for his wife? Well, we see it in in verses 26 through 28. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. 
Jesus gave himself away unto death to make the church his beautiful bride, to bring out our own glory and splendor, to cause our flourishing. Jesus died for our good, to give us what we most needed. That's a husband's job toward his wife. You, husband, put your wife's needs, your wife's glory, your wife's flourishing ahead of your own. Do I do this well? Not a chance. I told Erin last week, hey, I'm, I'm preaching on this passage, and she jokingly remarked that, well, I had a few days to shape up. <laughs> I had a few days to get this right. And of course, unfortunately, I need more than a few days to live up to this. Now, I, I don't really know what this means in terms of husbands as heads, uh, quote-unquote, being in charge. As head of the body, of course, Jesus is in charge. He is all-powerful and all-knowing. He wants to know and commune with us, but he isn't asking for our opinion or wisdom of how history should go. Jesus doesn't need our cooperation, so to speak, in order to accomplish his goals. But it's different for husband and wife. We read in Genesis 2 that Eve was created for Adam precisely because he needed help and community. Adam needed a helper fit for him to carry out his priestly task in the garden, as well as creation task of filling and subduing the earth. Eve is therefore bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, a suitable helper. And that term helper there, it's not a demeaning term. It's used more for God in the Old Testament than for anyone else. So Yahweh is a helper, just like Eve is. What I'm trying to make clear is that Jesus' leadership as head of the church is different than a husband's leadership as head of his wife. Jesus is God and is never wrong. How often are husbands wrong? So we shouldn't expect wives to follow their husbands in exactly the same way the church must follow and obey Christ. The leadership looks different. The analogy isn't perfect in every, every respect. So how does the analogy work? Precisely in this, that a husband leads and loves his wife by dying to his own glory and needs and desires for the sake of his wife, just like what Jesus did for the church. As head, a husband's needs and preferences are secondary to his wife's. In every matter, he puts her needs and preferences first. How to spend money, how to divvy up domestic duties, whose career gets focused, what to watch on TV, so on and so forth. This isn't about a husband slavishly caving in to every wish and demand of his wife. But where there are real differences of preference, opinion, and limited resources, the husband as head puts himself last. And that feels like death. That's a death. How does a husband love his wife? He dies for her. That's what headship looks like. A pastor in our uh, network posted this story to the other pastors on our Facebook page. It's written by a surgeon. He he writes this. Today I operated on a little girl. She needed O-negative blood. We didn't have any O-negative blood, but her twin brother, of course, has O-negative blood. So I explained to the, the little boy that it was a matter of life and death and that his sister needed his blood. He sat there quietly for a moment, then said goodbye to his parents and got up and went to the lab. I didn't think anything of it until after we took his blood... And sitting there, he asked me, so when will I die? He thought he was giving his life for hers. 
thankfully, of course, they're both fine. That's what headship means in marriage. A husband wakes up in the morning and asks, when and in what kinds of ways will I die today? As head, a husband goes through his day looking for places and ways to die for his wife, who is his body. So headship is not about male domination or superiority. Whatever it means, Paul doesn't define it as ruling. Husbands are clearly not told to rule their wives. They are not told to see that their wives submit to them. They are only told to love. And the power they are to exercise is the power to die and sacrifice for their wife's flourishing, loving them exactly the same way we see Jesus loving us on the cross. So therefore, that also means that headship means unity. Paul gives husbands the reason to die for their wives. It's not just about emulating Jesus. Paul appeals to a husband's self-interest. He wants husbands to see their fundamental unity with their wives. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Jesus identifies us as members of his body, so of course he will care for us. We belong to him. Jesus will not be finished until he completes his work in us. And we are united to him eternally in the new heavens and new earth. His joy will not be complete until then. In the same way, husbands will not flourish or experience the joy they are meant for outside of their wives' flourishing and joy. Because they are one. They must see their wives as a unity with them. Heads have bodies. Bodies have heads. They are united and need each other. Husband and wife need each other. Now, maybe this sounds obvious, but often it isn't to husbands. My wife loves to tell this story. One day we were newly married playing golf with a friend of ours. A little par three course, Blackberry Farms in Cupertino. It's a really small lot that the whole course is set out on. So the holes are really packed together and tight right next to each other. You could easily hit people on other holes. So in a few places, there are nets to protect golfers. So Aaron and I were sitting, waiting at the tee, uh, waiting to tee off. We were sitting down on a bench at a particular hole. And there is just such a net to protect us from people hitting up to a green nearby. So we're sitting there, and I saw someone hit a ball, and it was going up really really high, and it was going to get over the net and would potentially come and land on us. So I saw it, I looked up, and I said, heads up, and I got up and ran. (laughs) Leaving my wife there, (laughs) not knowing what I meant by heads up, not knowing, you know, if a ball was coming or not and what direction the ball might be coming in. Of course, the story has morphed now to where she says, I start running and saying, every man for his life, right? It's like I'm one of those dudes on the Titanic that kicked off the women and children off the lifeboats. But this is a reality for myself and many husbands. If men aren't subjugating, they are oftentimes abdicating. And this goes back to the beginning. Where was Adam when Eve was speaking with the serpent and being deceived? Right there next to her, apparently. He didn't speak up or help his wife at all, it seems. And when God asks Adam why he ate when he knew he shouldn't, he said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, 
she gave me the fruit of the tree and, and I ate it. Right? The woman whom you gave, not my wife, not bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, like he just sang over her in Genesis 2. The woman whom you gave. What do many husbands want? What do, many, what do most men want? To be left alone. To not be bothered. Not by co-workers. Not by children. Not by pastors. Not by parents. Not by wives. We want to pursue our agendas and preferences without being disturbed. And the greatest kind of disturbance is responsibility. If wives have agendas and preferences and goals, oftentimes all a husband wants is for her, to, her pursuits to not get in his way. If she wants to pursue an education or career, that's her business. If she wants to get new or more friends or better friends, that's her business. If she wants to be physically fit, that's her business. If she wants to go on paleo, that's her business. Whatever she wants to do is fine as long as it doesn't make my life harder. But what Paul says here to husbands is, it's your business. Whatever brings your wife life and joy and flourishing, it's your business. Whatever nourishes your wife and makes her feel cherished is your business. Why? Because she is your body. No one neglects their body. Instead, they take care of it. Your body is you. So Paul reminds us husbands about what marriage means. Verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is about husband and wife becoming one. A husband doesn't get to treat his wife simply as a co-worker or business partner or co-parent or housemate. She is a part of him, his body. And he cannot flourish apart from her. Headship, by definition, means unity with a body. And therefore, that means, by definition, as head, the husband has a responsibility. A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. Perhaps you notice how odd of a saying that is. We'll talk about it more next week. But you should note that in all the ancient cultures in which the Bible finds itself, the husband never left his father and mother to be united to his wife. The wife always left her home to be united to her husband and his family. Land and property descended through his name and line. Yet the Bible calls husbands as heads to leave their privilege and identity for the sake of becoming one with their wives. This means husbands as heads bear a certain responsibility. Both husbands and wives are to serve and sacrifice in marriage, and we'll see that further next week. But the foundation of that service rests on the husband as head being willing to leave everything behind for his body, his wife. Just as Jesus moved first, taking the initiative to save us, so must husbands. This is what it means to be the head, to bear that kind of responsibility. This is exactly what Adam and most of Adam's sons to this date do not want. Adam tried blaming his wife, but scripture consistently records the sin and blame as Adam's. See, Paul doesn't tell husbands to be the head of their wives. He simply states a fact. Husbands are the head. Marriage is a lifelong covenant between man and woman and both have to serve each other in ways that feel like dying. But as head, 
as the head, the husband has a responsibility and power of setting the tone and spirit and culture of the marriage. Everything being equal, the marriage goes as the head goes. Which means as head, if the husband ever has uh, a reason to point fingers and blame, he must point first at himself. As head, the husband has a responsibility of dying first. Just as Jesus moved first toward us, taking the initiative to love us, so should husbands toward their wives. Now, some of us have read or listened to pastors we respect teach that headship means the husband gets a tie-breaking vote. Uh, If that uh, ever in an important decision, husband and wife cannot agree, headship means that in the end, the husband has to decide what to do for the good of the family. Now, if that's how your marriage works and you both came to that conclusion and you're happy with it, that's fine. But this passage isn't really talking about roles or power in that kind of way, right? Jesus is reordering power. So I don't see in this passage here uh, an argument for a tie-breaking vote. The way I read this is the husband doesn't get the tie-breaking vote. He gets the tie-breaking death. Headship means the husband dies first. I mentioned how um, mine and Aaron's engagement was hard. Perhaps the worst was settling on a wedding date. Uh, We were going to be using someone's backyard. Um, They were being very generous with us. And so we only had a few available days uh, where we could use that. It was either in early June or mid-July. Early June was problematic because my brother, who was my only brother and my best man, his second daughter, his second child, was due to be born the first week of June. So if we have our wedding then, he might not be able to attend, and certainly his wife wouldn't. It would be heartbreaking for them and my parents. The mid-July day was problematic because Aaron's brother had a potential business opportunity, and then he might have missed the wedding. So neither choice was palatable. We were not going to push the wedding later because I had no money, and we weren't going to live together before we were married. So, whose family do you disappoint? Whose relationship do you complicate? A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Really wasn't a question. And that choice has led to permanent relational damage in my family. But could I start out our marriage telling Aaron that my parents and brother were more important than her? Of course not. Headship means the husband dies first. So there, I died first. Way back then, set the tone, I'm done. No. Husbands are to die first every day, setting up a culture of service in their marriage. That kind of headship, sacrificial love, creates conditions for a wife's flourishing and draws her love, respect, and submission freely, not coerced, not demanded. Maybe you're a husband now or a future husband and you're thinking, this just sounds impossible, Bob. And it is in our own strength. Others of us here will never be a husband or maybe never married and we think, well, what about me? Am I going to get to participate in this? And then there's certainly some wives here who are wondering, what if my husband is never like this? What if he never grows into this kind of a husband or head. But the thing we have to remember is we all have the perfect husband in Jesus. He has the power and right to rule us, but instead he wins our hearts 
by giving everything up to save us, submitting even to death on a cross. With us, he is gentle and kind, not demanding or domineering. He is patient with us in our doubts and in our sin. He comes after us in our sadness and our wanderings. He never gives up on us. He chose alienation from his father, absorbing the penalty of sin and the curse of death to win us as his bride. And his work is not finished until we are flourishing in whatever positions and capacity he has called us to. He will lovingly and faithfully work in us until our joy is complete in him. That's the kind of head Christ is. And that's the kind of husband we have. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you, uh, Jesus, that you left home uh, to come and save and win us, your bride. And we ask that you would help us to uh, understand that and believe that this morning and that that would provide uh, a, a certain amount of security and freedom and joy and hope that we could go out and love others in a similar way. I pray for the marriages here. I pray particularly for the husbands. Uh, that you would work in them, that they would sense that they can be united to you as they give themselves up for the sake of their wives, for the health of their marriage. And I pray that every one of us would be responsive to that kind of love from you and from each other. And help us to bring this good news to our neighbors and co-workers to Silicon Valley. That marriage and everything else doesn't have to be about power dynamics or a power struggle, but instead that we can give away power and we can see others flourish flourish through you. Please do this among us in our community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.